Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is an extraordinarily important relationship between Washington and Beijing. Um, the most, I think. You know, maybe the most important, right? I once said that to President Bush, and he said, no, 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 Michael. It's Mexico City and Ottawa. China's third. <laughs> What the party elders, Jiang Zemin and many others, thought they were getting with Xi Jinping is what I call a sexy Hu Jintao. You know, in other words, uh, a guy like Hu Jintao who would respect the boundaries and the way the system was structured, but would get stuff done. And what they found out is they got something very different. What's your sense of the degree of Chinese influence over North Korea? They have absolute leverage, and yet they're absolutely unwilling to use it. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Chris Johnson is a China and an East Asian expert. Chris worked as an analyst for almost 20 years at CIA specializing in China and where he and I worked closely together a number of times. Chris today holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a fancy way of saying that he runs the China program there. I believe that Chris is the best China analyst anywhere inside or outside of government. I had the opportunity recently to sit down with Chris to talk a bit about his career as an analyst and a lot about all things China. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morrell. Chris, um, it, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Michael. Glad to be here. So we did a lot of things together. Yes, we did. At CIA, um, from working on tough analytic issues to traveling overseas to brief prime ministers, you'll remember that, to preparing the substantive transition book for the Bush administration in 2000. 
I look back fondly on all of those interactions. Same here. I remember the, the, the briefing of the prime minister. We won't talk about who the prime minister was, but I remember the briefing of the prime minister, and I remember him wanting to go deep on China, and I remembering, thank God that I brought Chris with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was lucky. <laughs> so I really want to focus on China, but my listeners would not be happy if I did not ask you a few questions about your career at CIA. Sure. So you graduated from University of California at San Diego uh, with a bachelor's degree in history and political science, and then from George Washington University with an with a advanced degree in security policy studies. Right. How was it that you ended up at CIA? Uh, well, it was uh, kind of a lark, actually. <laughs> um, Me too. I, I, yeah, I was uh, at GW, and they had a career fair, and the agency had a table. And, uh, you know, I, I gave them a resume thinking I'll never hear from them again. And um, my What wife, else were you thinking about doing at that time? Uh, not much. Uh, I just thought, you know, here's – I knew I wanted to work for government and defense and intelligence was interesting to me. But I, it wasn't like my life's ambition to work for the agency or something. And my wife and I were living in a very ramshackle student apartment at the time. And I remember coming home one day and we had one of those small tinny mailboxes and the, you know, then 90-page hard copy application mm-hmm. was bursting out of the mailbox and so on. And, you know, the rest is history. It as took you say. like a month to fill out. Exactly. On a manual typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> so how <laughs> is it that you ended up working on China? Uh, that was also a sort of happenstance. Were you, um, a, were you did, did you no, have a China I, background? I was actually doing um, Russia things, former Soviet Union and some Middle East stuff in school. And uh, one of the things I was doing on the Russia side, though, was civil military relations. And so when I went in for interviews, we did Russia House, we did the Middle East guys. I thought that makes sense. And they said, okay, now we're going to go see China. And I sort of said, China, I don't know anything about China. And they said, well, they want to interview you. So I went and it was the civil military piece they were after. They were looking for that. And they said, you know, we can teach you the China. And uh, I'd love to say I was prescient and saw where China was going. And when was, was this? What, what was this the... was 1992. So um, just as they were coming out of the Tiananmen period and so on. And you know, I was a student intern, basically. So I thought, why not try something different? And I fell in love with it. And I've been doing it ever since. Mm-hmm. So I know the answer to this question, but my listeners don't, right? Which is what does an analyst do every day at CIA? A little bit of everything. You know, that's why I think it's such a fascinating career. Uh, you know, you obviously do a lot of analytic work, written work, research work. Uh, you brief senior policymakers. You uh, take care of people who are inside the building. You meet with foreign liaison. Uh, you work with the operations directorate to help develop sources and glean intelligence information. Uh, and occasionally, as you mentioned, you go on to exciting task forces or other opportunities inside the building. Uh, and then, of course, tremendous opportunity I had to serve on the team of the president's daily brief, yeah, which was really fascinating. So, so this this analytic process you talked about, where do the questions that you're trying to answer come from? All over the place, but, you know, primarily from policymakers. Um, That's obviously our main uh, sort of focus. And also from ourselves, you know, in other words, how do we see the shifts that are happening in a particular country or region uh, or functional issue, if that's what you're working on? And how do those then translate into intelligence questions that need to be answered by policymakers? And I think that was the exciting part of the analyst job. It's so different than being an academic. You know, you remember that the core is that support to policy. And therefore, it, to me, it always gave a sense of mission that I thought was extremely exciting. And as you as you matured in the career, you came face to face with some of these very Many senior of them. policymakers, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you weren't just writing for him, but you're actually, you know, with the National Security Advisor and he's grilling, Absolutely. grilling you with questions, right? What's that like? 
uh, intimidating, but fantastic. I mean, you know, to me, that was why I was there, was that sort of direct intelligence support to policy. And, and actually, as there were policy changes down the line, just in terms of where the, the agency was going, that uh, mission was not de-emphasized, but changed, you know, dramatically. And, and so that was always the thing that got me up in the morning, was that direct mm -hmm. policy support. So one of the things that is absolutely true that, that even some analysts at CIA don't fully appreciate is that the judgment of an analyst is not the judgment of that analyst, right? It's not the judgment of Chris Johnson. Absolutely. It's the judgment of the Central Intelligence Agency, right? Yeah. So because of that, this written work gets reviewed, yes. right? W yes. What's that like? Rigorously. <laughs> what's that like? By you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not easy, but, you know, it's, um, it's also a real learning experience. You know, I think uh, one of the things that's funny is, you know, now being at a think tank, I'm in a more academic job. And people are always sort of saying, why does everything you write so short? You know, and I say it's because, you know, that's how I was trained. And, and you know, it really is a discipline. I mean, the, the joy of PDB writing especially or, or other intelligence products is how do I convey the complexity of, say, Chinese politics in two tiny columns in a very pithy manner? And that's a real discipline. Um, and, you know, my take on it was always I was happy with the review process as long as it got better at each stop. And, you know, to be fair, 90 percent of the time it did. So mm -hmm. that was good. And I think, you know, one of the things that I found is that when you have to put something on paper. Absolutely. It requires a lot more rigor than when mm -hmm. you're actually just saying something, right? right. And, yes. And there's, there's a lot more logical problems in what people say than when you put it on paper because you can see them, right? right. And it's harder to hear them. So that, that discipline is incredibly important. It is. It's, it's a real, I like to say it's a forcing function, mm -hmm. you know, to, and it, it basically lets you know, do I have an analytic line here or not? Mm -hmm. You know, basically when you have to go through the discipline of writing it down. Right. So as you noted, you had opportunities to do other things at CIA besides just be a China analyst. And right. one of those, one of those was to be part of the team of folks who who takes the PDB mm -hmm. downtown right. um, to the senior most policymakers every morning and lets them read it or briefs it, whatever their preference is, and mm -hmm. answers their questions and really you know, gives, gives them the daily dose of intelligence that they need to do their job. And you did it for the Secretary of State. I did. Yeah. What was that like? Amazing. You know, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. Uh, grueling, <laughs> as you know, from having done the job as well. But, um, you know, in terms of, as I mentioned, what got me going, that support to policy, it was really exciting. And what was striking is I wound up serving for two secretaries of state. And, you know, it was interesting, same position. And they were, they, they were... It was Colin Powell and then Dr. Rice. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, same position, but two totally different learning styles, approaches to intelligence material, uh, et cetera. And it was really fascinating seeing that interchange and dynamic and then, you know, just the opportunity to be there on the front lines, I yeah. think, was really exciting. Yeah. And also just opened my aperture in terms of being an intelligence analyst to the the full scope of the intelligence enterprise, mm -hmm. right? You know, when you're working China, you're kind of – or any other target, you're in that silo. But when you're in that job, you're getting everything and seeing all the activities of the community. So, Very exciting. So being – that up close and personal to a senior policymaker, did it affect how you did your job when you went back to be a China I think analyst? it certainly gave me a better awareness of how to be relevant, you know, to them. Uh, I think that was definitely true and um, helped you almost be, for me, it helped me think more entrepreneurially, I guess you could say, as an analyst. You know, how can I convey what I'm doing in a way that is attractive and can help policymakers in their day-to-day -day tasks? I think doing that job, you really learn how to do that effectively. Yeah. So I remember the day when you came to see me to say that you had decided to leave. And I was like, oh, my God, please, please don't leave. So why did you decide to move on? 
You know, I think it was uh, just a function of uh, a couple of things, but I think the the main factor really was um, I had sort of hit a point in my development there where I sort of thought, well, if I am ever going to do anything else, um, now's probably the time because in, as in any other enterprise, the more time you spend somewhere, the harder it is to go do something else. If you will, the numbers start to work against you and, you know, things like that in terms of retirement. And uh, I had tremendous respect for the person who's now my boss, uh, John Hamring, when he was Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration, and a couple of key people, uh, Dr. Kissinger and and uh, Rich Armitage, a former Deputy Secretary of State as well, you know, let me know about the position. And, you know, I didn't, and they didn't give me a lot of choice. They basically said, you have a week to decide. So I had to get my yellow pad out and figure it out pretty quickly. <laughs> So I so, so so I still regret I still regret. I know that. you weren't happy with me. I remember that day <laughs> yeah, very well. It's not that I was happy with you. I was I wasn't happy with us, right? For not for not being able to keep you. So so fair enough. Yeah. Before we dive into the current issues related to China, I wanted to take you back to one issue that happened during your time at the agency, the so-called EP three. Oh yeah. Crisis, the spring of two thousand one, March, I think. The the, the first April. foreign policy oh. crisis of of President Bush's tenure. Mm-hmm. What happened there? What what was the issue just to kind of bring people up and then I'll sure. follow up with some more questions. Yeah, basically um, the U.S. had been, uh, as we always do, engaging in um, surveillance operations within, you know, international waters, but what uh, China considers to be its territorial waters. It had been an interesting sort of situation because there had been some near misses uh, between our reconnaissance planes and Chinese um, fighter aircraft that were sort of... Uh, Come out uh, to take a look. Right, coming right. out to see what was going on. Frankly, there was some hot dogging on their end that was going on at the time, and we were, you know, making representations to them about the lack of professionalism and so on and that, and it just looked like a recipe for disaster, and eventually that's what happened, uh, was a Chinese fighter aircraft rammed one of our planes, forcing a landing on a Chinese island, Hainan Island, in the southernmost tip of China, and the crew was held for about and a week. The fighter crashed, right? Yes, it did. And the died. pilot died, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, our crew was held for about a week. Yeah. And it was a very challenging situation. Yeah. So in your view, how did President Bush manage that? I thought he managed it extremely well. And frankly, it was a really exciting opportunity for intelligence support because, you know, in any crisis situation like that, the first thing is what happened here, you know, and so we were able, fortunately, to provide some pretty good insight that on that immediately. And the interesting piece was, you know, one of the challenges in those kind of crises when you're providing intelligence support is the balance between fact and analysis, you know, in other words, telling them what's going on, but also trying to help them understand broader context and so on. And unfortunately, or fortunately, because of a previous incident, the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in 1999, we had had kind of some sense how something like this might play out. And we were able to use lessons learned from them and so on to kind of prepare the policymakers. But I think the best thing the president did was, frankly, to be very firm with the Chinese about the crew coming back and so on, but then to listen to the Chinese for signals about how to get out of this, which right. turned out to if be I really important. If I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that Chinese nationalism sort of flared, right, because the pilot died. Oh, yes. And, and of course, the regime was sort of stoking that um, at the time because, you know, when these incidents happen in a regime like China's, uh, you know, they want to make sure that the unrest doesn't turn against the regime, mm-hmm. right? So it's better to direct that outwardly. I mean, this was a huge problem after the Belgrade embassy bombing, where they were literally throwing things at the embassy and protesting outside and so on. It was a very um, volcanic period at the time. Right, right. And and so it took restraint and, and Absolutely. discipline. Yes. You know, maybe this is an unfair question, but do you think that would play out differently today? 
I don't think it's an unfair question. It's one I think about every day, actually, and I worry that it would. Um, one of the key elements that helped us get through that crisis was the Chinese did not want to fight, you know, in that situation. And Jiang Zemin, the then president, traveled outside of the country, and he wound up saying while he was abroad, you know, when two people run into each other on the street, someone says, I'm sorry. And that was the clear signal as to how we were going to get out of this. Um, you know, in a in a China now that is if you will, feeling its oats internationally and the leader like Xi Jinping, I'm not sure we would that he'd be looking for a way out uh, necessarily or that there would be this desire to avoid, you know, the tensions with the U.S. And it's something I'm concerned about. Okay. All things China. Hmm. And our listeners should know that, that at least I think, and I wouldn't be surprised if you would agree with me, Chris, that this is an extraordinarily um, important relationship between Washington and Beijing. Um, the most, I think. You know, important. maybe the most important, right? I once said that to President Bush, and he said, no, 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 Michael. <laughs> it's Mexico City and Ottawa. <laughs> China's third. <laughs> so I, I didn't argue with him. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but I do think it is for certainly the future of the region, if not for the future of the world. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to how you think about these issues. So let's start with Chinese politics. Mm-hmm. Where was it going under Hu Jintao? Right. And where is it going now? Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, under Hu Jintao, it kind of depends on how you look at it. But the general assessment would be for people who were positive about, you know, short of Xi Jinping and, or excuse me, Hu Jintao and his leadership, uh, it was headed in a direction of greater institutionalization, greater regularization of the process, you know, early identification of successors rules about ages on the Politburo and so on, and a sense of sort of stepwise promotions, all neat and orderly, and frankly, a, a heavier and heavier emphasis on the idea of collective leadership, that while the party chief was, of course, first among equals, it was first among equals, not just first. I think Xi Jinping has upended all of this, you know, basically. And uh, if you look at the recent party congress, um, he's clearly the most powerful leader, at least since Deng Xiaoping, arguably since Mao. Um, you know, he's gotten his name into the Constitution, which is, you know, sounds silly, you know, sometimes to a Western audience, but in terms of ideology still matters very much in their system. And it confers power. You know, if you are the ideological arbiter is the, the term of art that they use, it makes it much more dangerous for others in the system to resist you personally and to resist your policies. And then likewise, I think we've seen a situation where the Politburo Standing Committee, the highest sort of decision-making body in China, it's not a decision-making body necessarily anymore. It's more of an advisory body to Xi Jinping as the top leader. So why why the shift? Is it his personality? Is it his belief that this is necessary for the future of China? What's driving this? I think it's a combination of factors. I think, you know, what got Xi Jinping where he is, I think, was a general consensus among the senior party leadership that the system was trending towards sclerosis and that they were having a difficult time taking on hard problems and that um, vested interests were beginning becoming more and more entrenched. Uh, corruption was becoming a huge problem. And there was a notion that Hu Jintao just didn't have the stuff, you know, to be able to address this. Uh, what, uh, you know, it's kind of a joke line, but what I often like to say is what the party elders, Jiang Zemin and many others thought they were getting with Xi Jinping is what I call a sexy Hu Jintao. You know, in yeah. other words, uh, a guy like Hu Jintao who would respect the boundaries and the way the system was structured but would get stuff done. And what they found out is they got something very different. So I think that's a, a big piece of it. A second piece of it is because of Xi Jinping's lineage as one of these so-called princelings or 
blue bloods, red bloods. Who was bloods. his father? His father was a guy named uh, Xi Zhongshun, uh, and he was a um, close comrade of Mao's. Not one of the most senior leaders, but somebody who was very important um, in his time. To be fair, they've kind of inflated his importance now that uh, now that Xi Jinping is around. And, and importantly, his father was purged multiple mm-hmm. times by, by Mao Zedong, which was obviously a key formative experience for him. And I think both that formative experience and, if you will, growing up at the feet of this leadership, he learned that if you're going to play in the system, it's a Hobbesian environment. <laughs> Life is nasty, brutish, and short. And if you're going to play, play hard and win. And I think that's what we've seen is an absolutely brass knuckles approach to politics. What is he like as a person? My sense is uh, that's hard to know exactly, but uh, he's clearly very intelligent. I, I think one thing that's striking about him is he's very different from the Chinese leaders we've had for the last several rounds. They were engineers, most of them, uh, technocrats. Um, somewhat bland people. Jiang Zemin was interesting. You know, he was sort of a bon vivant. But um, Xi Jinping is very steeped in history, very steeped in politics, frankly, very steeped in Chinese foreign policy and so on. Um, Classic Chinese, you know, teachings and wisdom. He always starts off with a, you know, classic Chinese phrase or something along these lines. So he's a very smart person. And I think he is also exceptionally pragmatic. And that's actually important because I think a lot of people feel... He's taking the country in the direction of a new cultural revolution, or he's a power-mad megalomaniac like Mao. I don't see that in his personality. So looking at this from the perspective of what's in the best interest of China, Mm -hmm. would you say that this path is more in the interest of China than the Hu Jintao? world? You know, I think think both models had their advantages and disadvantages. My own sense is what I find striking, uh, to answer that question, Michael, is the average Chinese person doesn't seem to matter that Xi Jinping uh, doesn't seem bothered rather by Xi Jinping's concentration of power. Um, this is something actually they think he's making China strong. He's strong. You know, if you do your cabbie driver intelligence uh, <laughs> collection and you ask, they don't care if he stays for 10 years or 50 years. You know, um, they, they're, they feel that the country is strong and they like this notion of sort of a strong leader. And is the anti corruption? That's a big part of it. Absolutely. It's extremely popular. I mean, let's face it, all publics like, you know, political bloodlust, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of it. And we all like to see the mighty fall. Um, And, you know, your average Chinese confronts corruption on a daily basis, they're being shaken down by the local official or local uh, policeman and so on. And, you know, the, the notion is one of the games that the leadership has long played is to say, the leadership in Beijing is upright and clean, and so on. It's the local official, that's the problem. But the anti-corruption campaign is revealed it goes all the way up to the top of the system. And so I think that instills in the public a sense of Xi Jinping making people accountable. And that's really important. Is it sustainable over the long term? He's decided it's sustainable. Uh, you know, one of the key questions, I think, uh, there's two issues. I think on a, on a sort of a mechanical level, what we see is an effort to try to institutionalize the campaign now. So moving from, you know, the tiger hunt, so-called tiger hunt, going after high-level people political enemies, you know, strangely enough, no one close to Xi Jinping has been netted in the uh, anti-corruption campaign to uh, a sort of more regularized effort. And, you know, one of the things they're doing, for example, is they will establish um, at their government meetings this spring, a new national supervision commission. And the goal of that seems to be to take it out of the current party body that manages this. And there's been a lot of accusations about, you know, grabbing people in the middle of the night, burning them with cigarettes, you know, sleep deprivation, the whole nine yards, and and making this a more rules-based, you know, sort of approach. So there's that piece. 
the the more philosophical question is how does Xi Jinping, having as I mentioned earlier, bit all the hands that fed him, how does he hand off power? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you do that when you've angered so many constituencies mm-hmm. and so on? I take maybe a, you don't. <laughs> well, I take a very contrarian view. My my view is, in fact, he will hand over power mm-hmm. um, five years from now, at least formally. Largely because, again, being a child of the system and a traditional Chinese leader, you demonstrate your power the fewer titles you have, the more powerful you are. Deng Xiaoping's last official post was honorary chairman of the Bridge Association, um, yet he was still pulling the strings right, from behind right, the scenes. Right. Do you see a potential successor? At this point? I think there are several potential successors. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the current Chongqing party chief, Chen Min R, who was sort of discussed as a possible standing committee member should they have chosen to signal the succession. Uh, my assessment from five years ago when he first arrived was that the one thing he would not do is signal the succession, primarily because he was interested in keeping as much power in his own hands because he has a tough job, you know, to do. Uh, secondarily, I think, you know, there's always the issue. If you identify the successor five years and everyone knows you have a five-year clock, guess where the attention starts to go, you know, to to the successor. And then the third piece is, I think, my sense from my contacts is she is very aware of the challenges Deng Xiaoping faced. You know, he purged two successors before he finally landed on Jiang Zemin. I think Xi Jinping would like to avoid that. And so what he's doing now, I think, is testing a mm. bunch of different candidates to see how they perform. And you know, do you think his preference will be that they that that they run the place the way he has? Certainly, I think that would be uh, likely. I mean, something that was interesting on my most recent trip, for example, was you hear a lot about well, how so and so doing or how so and so doing. Well, they have five years to show their understanding of Xi Jinping's vision for China is the, is the answer you get. <laughs> so, so when you step back, what is the the change in politics, the way the way the place is being managed? What does that mean for us? Well, uh, for one, decision-making is much more centralized than it was before and therefore quicker. Um, And uh, so if we were to have another crisis scenario or something like that, hopefully that could be a positive thing. In general, I think it's potentially negative. You know, the downside of the previous system was it was so sclerotic and slow-moving uh, it took a long time to make decisions. However, we could see where they were going. And I mean that both in the sense of my former career <laughs> and my current one. And there were a lot of nodes you could watch. You know, you could watch the formal bureaucracy. They discussed everything in ridiculous detail and kind of get a sense of flow and where they were headed. She already several times has kind of made relatively sharp turns in policy. And that makes us uh, makes it a challenge for us to keep up with him, I think. Okay, Chinese economy. There's all sorts of debates about where the economy is going, how long can rapid growth continue, what it's dependent on. What are your views on that question? It's probably the question of our age, really, um, trying to sort out what will happen there. The sense I get is that there's a general consensus among the leadership that the old economic model, which was very reliant on you know infrastructure, property development, um, dirty industry, that's dead. They've gotten all the mileage they're going to get out of it. There's a lot of focus now on shifting to certainly a more consumer-based economy, an innovation-led economy, and this is turning into an issue in trade relations with the United States. You know, historically, China has never been a challenge to the core of where our economic heart, you know, uh, resides. Was a complementarity. Absolutely. Um, Now this is starting. We're starting to move into that space as they move into semiconductors, AI, quantum computing, you know, all areas that are obviously uh, essential to the forward progress of the U.S. economy. You know, the key questions in terms of the health economy really rely around debt. Um, They've got a large amount of debt. 
corporate debt is massive, provincial debt is massive. It's running about 300% of their GDP, which is, you know, certainly a flashing yellow kind of situation. And in other countries, the United States, Japan, they have similar debt levels, higher debt levels, um, but there's a general sense that that debt is held in some cases domestically. Um, there are institutions that manage that process. For some reason, there's a, a general sense that China's debt loads make it more fragile. Mm -hmm. um, the other issue is, can you run in an increasingly dynamic economy and society with a stovepipe Leninist system? And that's a real challenge that they're facing. And this is perhaps one of the downsides of Xi Jinping's centralization of, of power is that, you know, it's becoming more, the funnel's becoming smaller and mm -hmm. smaller, and it retards policy innovation at the local level, which has always been one of their, um, their sort of raisons d'etre. So the, the way to look at it, I think, with the economy is, is the leadership serious enough to do the hard? You know, that's really where we're at. And my sense is the politics get interesting as well, because now that Xi Jinping has crowned himself, you know, at the party congress, the next way station here is 2021, which is the 100th anniversary of the party. That can't just be a good year. It's got to be an amazing year, right, mm -hmm. for, the, for the party to legitimize itself and so on. So I think there's a general consensus that, well, if we're going to have a few rough years and do hard things, let's do it now um, and by, so that we can be on an uptick. And by, by hard things, you mean taking taking Deleveraging the system. Right. Um, you know, they're going to do reforms, not necessarily the reforms we would like to see. You know, I'm not sure it's going to be a market-based fire sale of state assets, for example, but they will do reforms. And deleveraging is the sort of term of art right now. You know, how do we bring down this SOE debt? How do we bring down the provincial debt? And I think they're pretty serious about it. You know, one thing that's striking about Xi Jinping He's much more of a risk taker than his predecessors. And I think some of that is this confidence he has as a you know, kind of born to rule kind of guy. Um, we've seen this unhelpfully, maybe on occasion, South China Sea, things like this. Domestically, we've seen it with the anti-corruption campaign. Now we're going to see if he's willing to take risks uh, on these type of issues. What do you think? I think he will. That's my sense, that he understands that for China to achieve the role that he wants it to achieve, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, as he likes to put it, and break through the middle income trap, which is a very serious challenge. You followed that uh, in your career early on, countries in Asia trying to do that. It, they have to do these things. And he has a team of advisors. He himself, the general view is that he doesn't understand economics particularly well, um, in part because he was purged during the Cultural Revolution and was sent down and so on. But he has a lot of Western-trained economist advisors. And the sense that I get is he listens to them. Um, and uh, they are trying to help him navigate this transition. So is a successful Chinese economy in the interest of the United States of America? Well, this is becoming an increasing issue of debate. And I think one of the things that's challenging is I worry that the Chinese don't fully appreciate the shift in tone here in the U.S. Uh, about that issue. And some of it is, of course, President Trump and the rhetoric from the campaign and so on. But I think it's broader than that. Uh, something that strikes me just here in town in, in the last six months, you know, there's a lot of this sentiment on the Hill. There's an increasing amount of this sentiment in the general public. Um, and it's not just economics. You know, we look at what's happening in Australia and we look at what's happening in New Zealand, Chinese influence operations using their, you know, Chinese communities down there to create problems for the governments and so on. And this is all kind of coming into the whirlwind here and being amplified and it's not helped when, you know, the Chinese, Xi Jinping in his speech sort of says something like China's standing tall and firm in the East. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's this kind of we're coming at you sort of feel to it. And um, that causes people to become concerned. And I think, you know, people generally 
have absorbed this narrative, whether it's true or not, that China has stolen most of the manufacturing jobs in the United States and has stolen a lot of our intellectual property. And that part's true. It's a great transition, Chris, to China and the world, which you've you've already started down. So they're looking outward, mm-hmm. seems to me. They're looking outward they more than they ever have. And the old Deng Xiaoping approach, right, which is... It's dead. Right, which is, you know, don't make waves. Keep a low um, profile. Keep a low profile. Mm-hmm. Focus on the economy. That's what's important, that that's gone. It is gone. Right? Yeah. What happened? Well, I think the first thing that happened was the global financial crisis and China's ability to ride that out relatively successfully. I think they now understand with bad policy, in other words, dumping a ton of credit into the system, they're now, you know, suffering these problems as we were just discussing related to that. But there was a general sense at that time, This that was the first time I saw the, the meme, if you will, of U.S. declinism mm. start to become strong inside their system. And you'll recall, you know, we were working that with very senior officials at the time and explaining that debate inside the Chinese system. And then I would say maybe 2010, they started to have a few of their own difficulties. We started to look better and it, it kind of quieted. And then it just seems to have gone on steroids, you know, from from there. And I think what's different is there's a greater confidence that, in fact, their system is the right choice Mm. for them. And not only is it the right choice for them, it could even have some potential for elsewhere. I mean, one thing that was interesting, I think it's been overplayed, this notion of the exportability of China's model. But it was interesting that Xi Jinping basically said, if you're a developing country and you want to develop rapidly – and maintain your independence. Cute line, right? We can you know? tell you yeah. how. <laughs> we can tell you how. And um, so that's quite interesting. And it bespeaks a level of confidence that they've not had. And I do think, to be honest, when you talk to people, it's genuine. They, they believe they have found a third way between socialism and capitalism that works for them and that is a viable development model. And I think that's given them the confidence. And then, of course, lastly, it's really this issue of you know, we have a situation now where, to use a sports analogy, it's open field running and no tackling from the opposition. You know, if you look at what happened um, in APEC, I mean, I think one of the issues, Michael, is that when there's no U.S. or other Western, however you want to put it, counter narrative that is highlighting the many deficiencies in China's system, it starts to look more believable, right? right? right. Um, And they're exploiting that. It is actually amazing to me that part of the end of history article written written back in the 1990s, right, was was that the debate between democracy and authoritarianism is over. over, Right? Well, it's back. It is back. It is back. uh, You know, this was interesting. You know, just at CSIS, we recently had a a recent sort of board meeting and, uh, you know, we had some questions along these lines. And it was striking to see, you know, what the trend lines are. It's not particularly um, helpful. And I think, you know, what China has done is to demonstrate that if you have a big enough market or population, you can indeed decouple from the global internet. You can, you know, do a bunch of these different things that previously people thought was impossible. Right. What role do they ultimately want to play in the world? You know, there's a lot of speculation, obviously. You know, you get things like uh, Michael Pillsbury's book talking about, you know, 100-year marathons and things like this, and it's all, you know, a cat-stroking master plan and so on. You know, my view is they're still trying to decide what type of role they want to play in the world, and that shouldn't surprise us. You know, they're a a dynamic society in, in massive change. I think the one thing we can say with great confidence is they want to restore their traditional role as the hegemon in East Asia. I think that's, you know, that's a given that doesn't necessarily mean they want to push us out of East Asia. Mm-hmm. I think what they want is when Asian country X is thinking about its interests or a policy shift or something along those lines, 
they want them to think about how quickly Beijing or how Beijing might react to that decision as quickly as they do about how the U.S. will react. I think that's what they're looking for. And then obviously, as they continue to expand their economy and move further abroad and get interests abroad, they have then interests to protect and therefore their global footprint increases. And you know what we see is interesting things, much of which is driven by the economy. Suddenly, China's realizing they're getting drawn into, say, the morass in the Middle East. You know, their longstanding policy there had been, we just want to be friends with everybody and do business and trade and so on. But they're finding as you become the chief consumer of the main product, <laughs> the Middle right. East oil, right. you have to start making choices because they tend not to like each other over there. So, you know, these are very interesting issues to watch. How do they see the United States in our future? I think it's tough. I, you know, I think most, it's important to underscore most senior officials still think the U.S. has got plenty of time left, you know, as, as the number one. A lot of gas in the tank. A lot of gas in the tank. And I think that it was actually very interesting, this period I described earlier, you know, there was this kind of triumphalism and talk of decline, and then, you know, it dropped off. And the people who were at that time saying the U.S. still has plenty of strengths were kind of happy. You know, they were sort of saying, look, we were right, you know, they'll come back. And and I think there's a sense that our current political situation uh, and challenges won't last forever. We will at some point re-recognize our, our many interests in the region and, and, and be back. But I think there's uh, still a strong sense that the U.S. has a lot of problems that it's struggling with and that ultimately, you know, we're a declining power. Uh, the, the slope of that decline is another matter. And certainly relative to, to their them. increase. Yes, I think that's right. What role for the United States would they like to see? I think. I mean, clearly they don't. They don't. They're, they're, there's huge disadvantages to right. them from us pulling back completely. Right? Absolutely. And so that role, and this is where it gets, I think, the most interesting. So historically, for example, they have seen the U.S. role in the region as a hedge against the resurgence of Japanese militarism. For example, you know, this is a meme that is constantly in circulation in their uh, in their system. They see, historically, they've seen the U.S. role as a rule provider, you know, as helpful, in large part because Asia's far away and we sort of provide these as free goods, security envelope, things like this, but we don't demand a lot. We're not hegemonic or a colonial power or, you know, things along these issues. I think that, though, is wearing. As their power becomes stronger, I think they generally begin to feel that they should be writing more of these rules or at least... The system was created at a time where they weren't playing at the table, you know, and so now either they want to work within existing frameworks to change the rules to be more, you know, um, conducive to them, or they want to create parallel institutions, AIB, the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank, et cetera, that are more favorable to them. Yeah. So this issue of China being the rising power and the U.S. being the status quo power and China wanting a greater say in East Asia, and we have that say today, you know, led to to, to Graham Allison's book. I was going to say, don't um, say Thucydides. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think I can say it. I don't think I can say it. Um, how do you think about how that gets resolved? You know, I think one thing that's interesting, and it's a great book that um, Graham put together, uh, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is there's a real argument on uh, among, you know, those of us who are watching the issue as to whether does does that model work in a globalized world? You know, there's this notion of, you know, previously we were all different boats, you know, floating around. Now maybe we're all different cabins on one boat and, and that constrains, you know, this competitive behavior and so on. 
I certainly don't feel that war is inevitable. What I do find interesting is that how then do we create structures to manage the inevitable tensions? And I think, you know, we've done a good job of that in recent years, and maybe that's breaking down a bit and needs to be looked at uh, again. I mean, I think what, for example, if you take the North Korea problem, you know, this is from China's perspective, and arguably it should be from ours, this is not really about a nuclear North Korea or the future of the Korean Peninsula. It's about the future of global security order, or at least the order in the region, and how China's, what they would say, legitimate security interests are being taken into account in that process. And so, you know, are we having the right kind of strategic dialogues, if you will, with China? Or are we, you know, continuing to focus on these very narrow issues? Yeah, so that's a great point. I thought that when when President Obama met with um, Xi Jinping mm-hmm. in California in mm-hmm. the desert, that they started this conversation. They did. And I it was think an extraordinarily right. important conversation. And, I agree. And that's yeah. not happening now. It doesn't seem to be. And, and you know, one thing that's perhaps troubling is uh, with the recent summit visit you know, China's official media sort of trumpeted, um, they call it now, you know, state leader diplomacy, right? And this is interesting. It's sort of almost like a throwback to Mao and Nixon. And, you know, you can argue the relationship is so massive. Should we be in a situation where just the leaders are running the relationship? You know, for the last 20 years, it's been the bureaucracy that has been running the relationship, the appropriate mechanisms on each side. The leaders are busy guys. They're running two very important countries. They can only meet every so often. Uh, if we can only advance the ball in our relationship when they get together, that's a problem as the far problem. as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. Back to North Korea for a second. The assumption among a lot of people who talk about this is that if only China made a decision to use its its economic relationship with the North Koreans, that Kim Jong-un would change course mm-hmm. and that would solve our problem. Yeah. What's your sense of the degree of Chinese influence over North Korea? Well, I think you have to think about it in an absolute sense and in a practical sense. In an absolute sense, they have absolute leverage over North Korea. If China ceases fuel oil deliveries, the North runs out of oil in a week, basically. Um, And we saw some of this in 2003 when they did temporarily turn off oil flows. Obviously, food aid, they're massive, but you, you can't cut off food aid. You know, that'd be a humanitarian disaster. So a line that I often like to use is a bit pithy, but I think it is accurate, is they have absolute leverage, and yet they're absolutely unwilling to use it, you know, those those particular types of leverage. Now, something that's been interesting in the current context is there's a suggestion that China has actually conducted some, let's call them experiments, on the oil delivery issue, and Russia has been quick to come in and fill the gap. Right, um, and right. that's been really interesting, you know, to watch that dynamic. And I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect... Maybe this is why we saw President Trump at APEC make some of the comments he made about President Putin and the desire to, uh, you know, um, warm relations there. My guess is Xi Jinping told him, if you want to help on North Korea, fix your relationship with Russia, you know, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Then at the sort of more tactical level, how much day-to-day influence do they have? I think that's waning. You know, the reality is uh, the younger Kim, Kim Jong-un, has done a fantastic job, if you will, of literally decapitating China's access points, you know, into... Literally, the, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the uncle, right, was right. very close to China. Right, right. Obviously, we had this episode in Malaysia here recently. That person was effectively under de facto Chinese protection for years, traveling between Macau and and Beijing. So that's a real issue. I think if you go back to the last period of tension, when tensions were this high in sort of 2010... There were some discussions had with the Chinese about um, collapse scenarios and things like that at that time. And my sense is they were willing to go relatively far. 
And you also got the sense that they had some ideas about candidates and, you know, things like this. I wonder if that's still true now. Um, and, and I think the most recent, we just had a visit last week by the head of their, they call it their international liaison department. It's for the two parties to be able to liaise with each other, Song Tao. Uh, my understanding is it was a terrible visit. Uh, the, the Chinese basically had to force the North Koreans to accept the visit in the first place. Uh, I guess the North was very bristly about it. And then, of course, Kim Jong-un made himself unavailable. He happened to travel, you know, outside of Pyongyang. And he came back basically empty-handed in the sense I get is it was pretty tense. And so then you ask yourself the question, shouldn't China be angry? You know, it's like a petulant child, you know, uh, and yet they won't step up. And, and that just tells us how important the stability piece is to them and the fear of collapse and think, refugees. How do you think they would like to see this evolve? Well, you know, it's it's uh, I'm always of two minds about this. On the one hand, I do believe that they are telling us accurately when they say they do not want a nuclear Korea because they know that means a nuclear Japan uh, or could lead to a nuclear Japan and a nuclear Certainly, South Korea. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, some in our system, you know, not crazy people are beginning to talk about this as an option, you know, dual key tactical nuclear weapons given to our allies to, you know, move the Chinese, you know, if, if they were upset about Thad, you know, what if something like that were, were, were to happen? So I think that's a legitimate consideration and, and they're genuine when they say that. I will say that the skeptic, I guess you can say in me, can't help but think, though, that China at some level gains comfort from there being a security problem in the region that takes up a lot of U.S. energy that is not them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I'm taking a sort of frog boiling tactic in the South China Sea, but there's this very pressing North Korean nuclear issue, I'm getting away with a lot down here while the focus is over here. So, yeah. so back to the bigger picture, Chris. What role does the Chinese military play mm -hmm. in where they want to go in the world? I think it's increasingly small. Uh, you know, one of the big takeaways, I mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the first things I was doing was civil military relations. Mm -hmm. So I've always had a healthy respect for the political role of the People's Liberation Army in the Chinese system. And uh, so if there's something I got wrong about <laughs> Xi Jinping, it was how quickly he would break the back of their mm -hmm. political power. And I think it was a a dual strategy. I call it political shock and awe, a combination of anti-corruption work and then this force restructuring of the military, which has just broken all the networks, you know, basically inside the system. And I think what we saw to the question you asked earlier during the Hu Jintao period, it would be wrong to say that the PLA was a rogue institution, you know, at the time and wasn't under party control. It was but we saw several episodes, you know, the test flight of the J-20 stealth fighter aircraft when Secretary Gates was there, their ASAT test, you know, things of this nature. And I think the way to characterize it was the PLA took advantage of certain monopolies it has, monopoly of military technical expertise, intelligence flows, things like this, to create a very large, I call it a gray area for themselves on security and foreign policy that they were very comfortable operating in. She very clearly, from the time he showed up, began to snip that away mm -hmm. and tighten it up. And, you know, the reality is the PLA politically and, and, and its influence is a shadow of its former self. So, so a military at the end of the day that's capable of what? Well, I mean, you know, this is the other interesting piece. I mentioned the force restructuring. I like to joke, but it's only half a joke. This is the one third plenum reform I actually don't want them to succeed on <laughs> because mm -hmm. either their old structure, which was a military region-based structure— you have that kind of structure for two reasons. You're worried about a territorial invasion from a Soviet Union that no longer exists, mm -hmm. right? And internal suppression. Mm -hmm. Those are the two reasons why you have a military region-based system. 
the system they're shifting to now is a joint command system, very similar to the U.S. system. I mean, it's effectively modeled on the U.S. system. So if they're successful in this, what we will see is a PLA that is more professional, certainly uh, more disciplined, more lethal, and more externally focused than its current you know, form. And I think that's uh, risky and challenging. So soft power, a bigger way to garner influence in the world? Well, they would like it. But, you know, China has struggled with soft power. And I think it's actually a great frustration to Xi Jinping. You know, why, why, in effect, why do we suck at soft power? And we've seen this in Africa and other places, you know, where they've been active. Uh, And part of the problem is, you know, China comes in to build a road or a railroad or something along this line. It's all Chinese labor right down to the cooks, you know, and so on. And then they leave, you know, uh, and oftentimes they take a lot of local resources and things like that with them. And um, there's not much value, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you had a situation where actually it was very jarring for the Communist Party. You know, historically in the Mao period, they worked very closely with a lot of African liberation movements, you know, after colonialism and so on, uh, to include Zimbabwe in the news recently. And for them to be being called by some in Africa, a colonial, you know, sort of or mercantilist power was very jarring for them. Uh, So they're struggling with this. And I actually think, coming back to this earlier issue about the exportability of their model, I actually think more than an actual effort to export China's development model, this is another attempt by them to give it another try Mm -hmm. on soft power. And they do struggle with it. Part of it's cultural. You know, Chinese culture is a a pretty transactional society. It's hard for them to understand giving away things without a return. Mm -hmm. So so our listeners tell them that one of the analytic tools that we used at the agency, still use at the agency, right, is when you think about the future, you look at the the, the factors that are going to determine right. where you end up, right? And that's yeah. actually more important than making predictions. Right. And if you think about this, this range of outcomes mm-hmm. in the U.S.-China relationship between cooperation and perhaps confrontation even, you know, certainly competition, but even perhaps confrontation, mm-hmm. what are the factors that you think will ultimately determine where we end up. And there'll be some mixture at the end of the day, right? Right. And there, what, what, there are what are the key factors that are going to determine whether we end up more at one end rather than the other? Right. I, I think one massive issue is the sustainability of their economic model. You know, in other words, can you really do find a third way? I mean, one thing I find frustrating sometimes in our, you know, American and Western media commentary is when people come out and say, you know, well, yeah, we want their economy to fall apart. You know, really? Do you want your 401k to disappear overnight? You know, I mean, we've seen some of the implications that China, when China gets a cold now, it's a real problem. I think how this nationalism card develops, um, you know, the, the the leadership understands that this is a double-edged sword and it can, you know, prick them as easily as it can be wielded by them. And I'm surprised, you know, sometimes when I go to China now, even longtime friends who are educated in the West and so on, but have gone back to China, um, they're rapidly nationalistic. And there's a deeper and deeper belief in U.S. conspiracy theories, you know, the, the desire to promote color revolution and change their system and, you know, all this sort of thing. These are dangerous trends. So I think, you know, people to people interaction is extremely mm-hmm. important. Another one, of course, is internally, but it has huge effects on the U.S., how well does the leadership manage the task of, given their authoritarian system, co-opting China's rising middle class? I mean, this is really an issue, right? It's it's not people who are scratching a living out of the dirt that make revolution. It's rising middle classes. And historically, the party's done a pretty good job of that. I think they got they took their eye off that ball a little bit uh, around the time of the Arab Spring because they became focused on could that happen here in China? 
But I think the Xi Jinping leadership has gotten back on message with that, with their concerns about environmental protection, food safety, you know, education for children, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. And that's a huge factor. And then, frankly, I think it's an issue of how well does the U.S. work with its allies, partners, and friends to create a coalition that manages China's rise. You know, we see China... What is that? What, what, what would that management well, look so like? Well, so, for example, on trade issues, right, we have to see that Europe and, you know, our allies and partners in Asia face exactly the same challenges from China's economic rise and its industrial policy and so on that we do. And so it would be absolutely foolish for us not to work with them, work in concert with them to manage these issues. Because if we don't, they will use their market power to play us off against one another. And they're doing that actually pretty effectively. To give an example, in the mid-2000s, China kind of came up with this policy called indigenous innovation, where they were basically requiring foreign companies, hey, you want to take advantage of our market, you have to bring your technology in. On both the business side and the government side, we worked with Europe, we worked with Japan primarily, and we kind of went in with a united front and said, we're not going to tolerate this. And China backed off. You know, an interesting intellectual exercise is, given the significant rise in their power and influence since then, would they be willing to back off this time? But we ought to at least give it a try. Uh, You know, I see this every day. You know, here in the U.S., we're moving toward much stiffer um, CFIUS legislation, you know, um, to sort of squeeze... China's ability to play in sensitive sectors of our economy. Europe can't really do that. You know, the EU is a messy institution. So we need to be working uh, in tandem with them to develop a common policy. So, Chris, um, you, you've been terrific and you've given us a lot of time. Um, one one last question. If you had five minutes with, with the president and, and his national security team, what would you want them to know about China and the relationship and that's a really tough one where, um, where we're headed the main focus for me would be to convince him that this is the strategic challenge for the 21st century there we face a lot of tactical challenges and i certainly wouldn't want to minimize the threat from isis and from other challenging problems but china unless it really you know takes the wrong road will be around um, and and a challenge for us to face and a recognition then that that takes a long-term approach and it takes resources and it takes commitment and, frankly, it takes time. Uh, you know, actually, I, I credit the president. You know, he was out there a long time for this recent Asia trip. It's not easy for the U.S. president to travel to any region for that length of time. So I think the commentary has been somewhat unfair maybe uh, about, you know, him not caring about the region. But it's this idea that, you know, this is a fundamentally important relationship that we can't afford to get wrong and it's important for children on both sides of the relationship. Would you say that China today is a national security threat or national security challenge, or how would you characterize that? I like the term challenge because I think they are threatening in certain areas, and I think what, but it's more a challenge primarily because of the economic relationship, which, as Xi Jinping said when he came here as vice president uh, some years ago, has traditionally been the propeller and ballast in the relationship. In other words, this is what we didn't have with the Soviet Union was a uh, an intertwined economic relationship. We do have this with China. And that's been a bulwark of when we get in tough times on the security side, that helps us moderate that. If we start to go into conflict in the trade and economic space as well, that erodes and becomes a huge problem. And then I think they would be seen more as a threat. And, you know, primarily coming back to uh, where I started off on this, as they increasingly move up the value chain in their economy and toward a more knowledge and innovation-based economy, that competition and threat becomes more real if they're going to take an industrial policy pathway. 
Yeah. So maybe a um, a national security challenge that if we and they don't manage it, we right. end up with a national security. Uh, I think threat. that's exactly the right yeah. way to look at it, Michael. Yeah. Chris, um, thank you very much. No, it's my been pleasure. Great to have you on the show, and thank great, you so much. Great to see you again. Same. Thank you. That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morell, and that was Intelligence Matters. This is our last episode for 2017. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks to both CBS News and to the Cypher Brief for making this podcast possible. In particular, thanks to my executive producer, Christine Theodoro, and to my digital producer, Kayla Suri. They are both amazing. Thank you, guys. And to our listeners, happy holidays. Please join us again on Intelligence Matters in the new year. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.